in a, in a way, through through modernism, somehow the idea that making a body in sculpture is in any way viable was a big question. I just thought, well, actually, what other subject for art is there apart from life? And what is the what is our closest experience of life? It is the life that we kind of live inside the body. So, can I bring the body back, not as a you know, sexualized object, but can I talk about the body as a place, as a place where we all live? Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick programming note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. In 1998, in the town of Gateshead, northeast England, an angel appeared. Not just any angel, but one made of rusty steel, 66 feet tall, and weighing 200 tons, its outstretched arms looking like airplane wings, spanning 177 feet across. This monumental sculpture is called the Angel of the North, and is just one of the hundreds of otherworldly, introspective, and stark creations by my guest today, British artist Anthony Gormley. Raised by a religiously conservative father and the youngest of seven children in the suburbs of London, Gormley found personal freedom and creative salvation in boarding school before studying at Cambridge. He then found his way to India to study Buddhism and eventually Chinese painting before returning to the UK an enlightened young man and studied fine art in London in the 70s. For the next 40 plus years, Gormley has developed his instantly recognizable style of art, made famous by his haunting sculptures, often molded from his own body. Anthony has won the Turner Prize, has an OBE, has been exhibited the world over, and is currently represented in New York by Sean Kelly Gallery. It's hard to keep up with his many comings, goings, and accomplishments, but fans can take a deep dive into his career in a new, updated edition of his 2017 monograph by Rizzoli that comes out in April. I caught up with Anthony at his London studio to chat about his storybook youth, the major turning points in his career, his advice for young artists, and some well-earned wisdom about life, art, and fulfillment. How would you describe, you know, your first memories as a child? Yeah, I I don't know. It was a very disciplined household, is the truth. I was the seventh child of seven children. And uh, everything had already been decided. The house had been built by my father, right, by the golf course in Hampstead Garden, the suburb. All, all of the rituals of daily life were already set. You know, got up, said your prayers, went down, had your breakfast. Um, actually, I wasn't allowed downstairs uh, to have any meals until after the age of seven. We were served, uh, you know, um, meals in the nursery. And my father was quite religious. Um, he, he, I mean, he was interesting because he was he was a great disciplinarian, but himself, um, you know, quite wild and impetuous. And uh, but maybe you know that, that that those things go together. But yeah, I I was relieved uh, to go away to boarding school. I have to say, um, because uh, boarding school was a lot less rule based um, than home. I've never heard that someone said that a, a boarding school was less less regulated than uh, than life at home. It was regulated, but in a very different way. And and there was the possibility of doing everything. Hampstead Garden suburb is a very particular place. It's a the kind of uh, yeah vision of rural life transposed to the suburbs everybody hides behind privet hedges the 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 original houses were all built by luchins they sort of followed uh, this strange kind of mixture of tudor and modernist so it was luchins to the north and Bauhaus to the south. We had, um, you know, a solarium and kind of curved windows and a, a big balcony and these huge steel frame windows that looked out, yeah, onto a landscape, yeah, studded with greens and and teas. You couldn't see another house. I mean, that was extraordinary. But at the same time, there were there there was a a, a cook and a and a nanny and a chauffeur and yeah life was uh, extremely regulated so to be relieved from in a way that rather clipped um suburban london life into north yorkshire and uh, being exposed to just a landscape with a river with forests with moorland with uh you know i don't know how many 
I mean, it seemed like the monastery. It was a Benedictine monastery, and it 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 it, it possessed the whole the whole valley, uh, and we were free to roam in it. And I I can remember going yeah going going up to Junior House, uh, aged eleven, and and just the miracle of it. I I was allowed to keep pigeons. I could have you know I I. I I took a jackdaw out of its nest in a quarry down the road and turned it into a pet. Um, you know, my friends had ferrets and, and as well as rabbits. And, 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 you know, we were, I remember I was just encouraged to do stuff. You know, they said, oh, Gormley, you know, there's a, there's a wall there at the end of the corridor. Why don't you, uh, why don't you paint a mural? So I did. Uh, anyway, it was like that. It was, uh, you could do stuff on all levels. And, uh, yeah, it was it was just great. It was the making of me, I think. And how, when you say it was the making of you, I mean, looking back, how do you think that that? Uh, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get to this soon, but this kind of like, uh, you know, I think about the old architecture trope of you have a low a low door uh, height, and then you have a nice high ceiling afterwards, and it gives you this ex- this sort of explosion of space, feeling of space. Like, how did that sort of um, you know, kind of regulated life as a young person impact sort of the the artists that I'm speaking to today? I mean, I think that, yeah, it's a good metaphor. When you have a constricted entrance, uh, you're very, very aware of all the spaces either side of the threshold, whether it's the big wide open spaces of nature or indeed, you know, the internal spaces of a cathedral for example uh, it's an interesting thing because i i would say that that actually maybe not the rule of saint benedict but certainly a monastic life is still one that i well i i would like to think i'm leading i mean even though i'm a householder and i have children a mixture you could say of um, working with the earth manual labor some kind of reflexive uh intellectual activity and then creative activity and i i still think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good mixture uh, so that 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 seems to me to be a good a good recipe for a good life uh, a balanced life action reflection and creation having said that you know th- th- i think that was the, the the forming of me in a way and then this incredible gift of significant others that were not my parents that said oh yeah of course you can build a boat you know go and build you know i, I built a couple of canoes and then and then yeah kayaked in them um I built pots that I could then drink out of. I uh, painted pictures that people responded to. I made sculptures. I made a, uh, you know, a table and a chair and a and a, yeah, somewhere to pray for my mother uh, as well as a, yeah, sewing a sewing basket. Um, I made a sand yacht. Uh, I made a radio. I made a lot of things at school, which were all enabled by, in a sense, the spirit. Uh, at Ampleforth, which was, we are not educating you to to pass exams uh, in order to, you know, reach a level of professionalism that will then earn you money. It was, we are here to to discover what your passions are, to feed your soul, uh, to allow yourself to be revealed. You know, for that, I, I you know, I. I I have enormous respect and gratitude. Um, it's an extraordinary thing to find in those critical times of one's life that there are, there are people who care in that way about you as a whole person. Before we return to Antony, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janice AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, The brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from André Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janice AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. This spring, Janice AC is proud to partner with sister company and premier Italian furniture brand, Poltrona Frau, welcoming their first outdoor collection to the United States. Poltrona Frau's Boundless Living Collection is vibrant and sophisticated, transforming any space into an Italian playground. 
The collection includes spacious, modular sofas with woven backs, poolside sunbeds with striped fabric pulled right from the cliffs of Positano, and my personal favorite, the Solaria high-back chairs made from a handmade rope weave that casts playful shadows which become part of any design scheme. But the line goes way beyond seating to include portable lanterns, coffee tables, and a stunning slender leg dining table made from teak with a surface covered in geometric glazed ceramic elements. Janice AC is the exclusive distributor of Poltrona Frau Boundless Living Collection in the U.S. and Mexico. To create your very own Italian garden privato style, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. So after you studied at Cambridge, you found yourself on the way to India. How did that happen? Well, I think, I mean, part of part of that experience of being at Cambridge in the in the late 60s and early 70s was very much, um, yeah, alternative, alternative traditions of mind, of mind uh, uh, use in a way. I was very, I, I was reading Evans Weintz and, and uh, yeah, all of the translations of the Upanishads and, and, and the Pitakas from Buddhist philosophy. I had friends who had uh, yeah, deep interest in yeah, Mahayana Buddhism. In my very first long vacation, so in 1969, I, I, I hitchhiked to, to Istanbul and then on to, to India. Uh, yeah, I went to Amritsar and up to, to Kathmandu. And I think that was my first, that was my first experience stage, whatever age I was, 19, uh, of alternative cultures uh, other than my own, not based on a monotheistic hierarchy, but uh, very much. I mean, that was the great thing. I mean, you know, you could just walk out your front door and keep going and your thumb could get you lifts. Anyway, it was a natural thing for me. I, I, I did history of art at Cambridge, as well as anthropology and, and archaeology as the first part of my tripos. I had no, I, I wasn't confident to say, oh, I know I'm going to be an artist. But I also knew very well that I didn't want to become an academic. I'd been making films, I'd been making a lot, a lot of photography, a lot of performance, uh, very, very interested in dance. And I did, I really didn't want to get stuck. Yeah, I, w- I was painting murals. I, I, I was painting murals for, for the May Balls uh, at, at Cambridge. Then, then the world, word got out. I would, I would charge five shillings a square foot. And uh, this was actually, um, I'd had a team of people. I, w- I would kind of set up all of the panels on the inside of marquees or sometimes in discotheques or whatever. I'd do all of the outlines and then I'd have this team of people filling in. Anyway, it was, it was very, very profitable. And after, after three months of um, doing murals all around, um, I had a thousand pounds and a thousand pounds was a lot of money. Yeah. So I thought, okay, um, I don't, I don't want to get stuck in a job. I don't want, I don't want to get stuck in academia. Um, I, I don't know what I am. So let's go on an adventure. And, and that led to a year's travel getting back to India and then two years staying in India, which, yeah, was, uh, I think, uh, another making of me. And how did you begin to study traditional Chinese brush painting? What was it about this technique that appealed to you? Uh, my, my father was keeping track on me by, by getting um, this uh, Catholic priest in Darjeeling to keep an eye on me. Anyway, and this Catholic, this Catholic priest who was really sweet. Anyway, he he would be sending messages back to my dad, sort of uh, letting him know what was happening. Uh, he said, "Oh, there's a Professor Chen in Kalimpong. You should go and see him." So I wrote to Professor Chen. Um, I am very interested in uh, the Tao Te Ching. I'm very interested in Taoism and, and Chinese culture. I hear that you're um, a brush painter. You're a calligraphist. Can I come and study with you? Uh, and he wrote back and said, sure. So I went. And uh, that was a real eye-opener. You, you know, I, I still now use Chinese brushes for all of my graphic work. And uh, what appeals to me, there's something about the immediacy of using a fully charged uh, Chinese calligraphy brush that is unlike anything 
else. It's a it's it's somehow this sensitive instrument that can carry your energy to this surface and somehow translate your feeling in a way that nothing else can. Yeah, the discipline uh, with 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 Professor Chen in Kalimpong, I can just remember whole mornings of just learning how to balance the brush. Uh, how he would just have me making dots and learning how to, in a way, do the interval to be with the gesture. Repetition very quickly, I think, becomes kind of this mixture of feeling in the rhythm of your breath, in the rhythm of your heartbeat, but somehow allowing those things to be the conscious background then of a of a repeated activity that becomes like a chant. And uh, you could say, well, this is the threshold of boredom if things, if the, if you're just repeating something. But in fact, you're not repeating because between every dot of these you know, vertically held brush strokes, you've changed. And you know, Brancusi said it better than anybody else. You know, it's not difficult to make art. What's difficult is to achieve the conditions in which art can 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 arise. It's what dancers do every day. It's what musicians do. They do, you know, they do their scales. They do their exercises, and then maybe when they go to the studio, they can fly. And how did you get from that that moment of being in the in the east and and dropping your brush to coming back to coming back and and sort of transitioning to sculpture and and what was that experience like? I suppose I had got quite good. At drawing or anyway making an approximation of the appearance of something i wanted a bigger challenge and i i guess intuitively i realized that actually recording the the appearance of something that was already in the world and the making of something that then occupies that world were very different and the second was more of a challenge the idea that somehow in bringing something into the world that wasn't there before you were implicitly changing the world and that seemed really really exciting to me so so I, i'd never been to an art school before i i i um, met rob kellatworthy who was a friend of yeah of the family he said well why don't you come for an interview at the central and that's that's what i did and i uh, that was a, another revelation to me this incredible i mean it was like going back uh, to the to to Ampleforth and finding there all these, you know, things you could do. In in the Central's case, it was all of these materials that I'd never worked in before: fiberglass, clay, making works with with fire and 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 water and air. After Antony's time in the East, he returned home to study art in London and began his journey in sculpture that would eventually lead to a solo show at the famed Whitechapel Gallery in 1981. I wanted to ask Antony to guide us through his early experimental career before discovering his now famous body mold techniques and how it all led to the work we know so well today. And how one near-forgotten show in the 90s called Total Strangers in the city of Cologne took conceptions about what a gallery show could be and turned it inside out, placing human-sized steel figures outside the windows of a gallery looking in or laying down on a sidewalk nearby. So there's an entire part of your career, correct, that you had before you started to work with the human body. I think for uh, from probably, uh, well, all the time through art school, I wasn't really dealing with the body at all. Um, I, I, I was, you know, a, a materialist abstract uh, sculptor uh, making works that were at one time influenced by Carl Andre and another by Noguchi. I, I realized how complicated I'd made everything and I wanted to just go back to real basics. So I'm, I'm, I made works that were just looking at a tree trunk and, uh, you know, unraveling the time inherent in a, in a lump of wood. Um, I then discovered the work of Pannoni and realized that somebody else had got there before me um or i would uh you know carve lines similar to 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 those on my fingers or hands onto the surface of stones and then i realized well yeah but maybe maybe there is a way in which i can use the things that we 
have most immediately in our vicinity. Can I use clothing to talk about our condition? Can I use food? Can I use bread? And I made two works. One was called Bed, which was 600 loaves of um, you know, steam-baked bread called Mother's Pride. Uh, very wishful thinking. Um, anyway, the most industrially, uh, most artificially produced. But we would call it Wonder Bread here, I guess. Wonder Bread, yeah, exactly. So I made this work that was um, 600 loaves of mother, um, Wonder Bread, uh, eat, uh, out of which I ate my own volume. Uh, I made that in maybe 1980, 1980 so sort of uh, six years after uh, coming back from India. And at the same time, I made this work called Room, which was a set of my clothes unraveled, unpeeled like an orange, but then expanded into an enclosure about 18 foot square. And I think between those two, in other words, between what we eat and what we wear is where we live. And then I had to go on and think, well, how, how, how can I express the place that I live? Well, it's obvious that I've got to use my own body. I've got to use my own body as, as first material in a way, then as, as tool, but also through that as subject. Uh, and not because my body is uh, anything special, but because it's uh, an example of what we all live inside. Um, and they, yeah, so once I'd made that step, I never realized in yeah, 1980, 81, when I made my first molding, that I would still be doing that, um, yeah, 45 years later. And your first exhibition was at Whitechapel Gallery, yeah, is that that's correct? Right, yeah. And how, how did that show come about and, and what was it like? What were your memories? Well, I got, when I finished at the Slade, I went to do a postgraduate at the Slade, which is a marvelous art, art school that was part of the University College London. Um, I just thought, who, who, should I, who should I get to come and see this? Um, I was very proud. It was, it was all, I, made, I was showing full bowl. Um, there were a couple of sarsen stones that I'd set, one of them I'd set into the floor of the Slade. I almost got uh, put in jail for damaging a national monument for doing that. Um, um, but I also had breadline, which was a loaf of um, wonder loaf laid out in the way we experience it, a, a bite at a time. I was quite proud of that. That was before I made bed. Anyway, I asked Nick Sorota to come and see it, and he, he liked it. Uh, so then when he had this Joseph Cornell show in 1981 and didn't need the upper floor of the Whitechapel and he invited Tony Cragg and me to do a short show of about a month uh, at the Whitechapel and I showed bed and room uh, those two works that I, I that indicated where I was going in that in that show and it was fantastic I mean it was a real it was a it was a very wonderful privilege in a way to 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 show in a in a gallery that is so associated with artists um you know the art white chapel is in the part of london where more artists live than any other has always been supported by artists and has always had an incredibly um you know when it was run by brian robertson but then also when it was run by nick sorota just this you know if you wanted to see the latest thing from anywhere in the world you would go to the white chapel and how did your first body mold art come into being? When when did you first sort of uh, what what was the genesis of that of that sort of idea? Well, I think it was immediately after that show in eighty one that I realized that's what the next step was. And uh, yeah, I asked I asked my my wife if she would um, yeah plaster me as I held a pose. And the first one, we, the first work that we did was called Mold. It's quite a thing. I I, I hadn't realised that uh, cling film was a much better way of separating body from from uh, plaster. Uh -oh. So I lathered myself in in uh, yeah Vaseline, um, and it, it was a very tight pose. So it's me in a very kind of clasped together fetal pose or crouching. Plaster gets quite hot. It's um, quite a long and sticky process. And that was the first work. And I, I wanted to then make it hermetic. I wanted to, I'd been working with lead. I, I couldn't afford to, you know, do bronze or any other kind of 
well, I wanted to make somehow this thing more adamantine, more lasting. I just beat lead over the surface of a, it's quite a thick plaster, it's about an inch thick. Uh, and it has its mouth open, so you see through this lead-covered carapace into the dark interior. And that really excited me, that idea that actually it wasn't about the appearance of the body. It was about the place that a body had been, a particular body had been, and anybody could be, but that then made you think about existential things. So this this mouth, this open mouth that was a, in a way a, a aperture, a a threshold between space at large and then this human space, this constricted human space. And then, yeah, then I made a second work, um, <laughs> which has its asshole open okay. uh, and its ass in the air, called called Hole, Hole, H-O-L-E. And then I made the third one, which was called Passage, which, which was just lying flat with an erect penis where the end of the penis is open. And together, I, uh, yeah, then maybe at the British Art Show that, well, I don't know where I showed it. No, maybe I, no, I showed it in 1982 at the Venice Biennale. And that maybe was the first, <clears throat> I'd never made a work, you know, so directly referring to the body before. And I showed that work in the, Ars in the Arsenale. And what was the reaction like at such a charged place like Venice and the Biennale? It's, it's, you know. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a, uh, you know, we may think quite rightly that the, the Venice Biennale is a funny old kind of inheritance from colonial days, but actually it is unbelievable to see your work in the context. You know, Julian Schnabel was over there. Issa Gensingen was right next door to me. Um, suddenly, you know, having only been out of college a couple of years, to suddenly see your work in the context of international art from all over the world, amazing. And, and the reaction was, uh, was incredible, um, you know, extraordinary. Um, uh, yeah, in the, the the result of that showing at the Venice Biennale in '82 resulted in me joining the Salvatore Ali Gallery in New York. And actually, I didn't I didn't have a gallery in England for for another ten years. Yeah, I, I did I did my first show uh, with with Jay Jopling White Cube in something like '92, um, and. Uh, so all of my early shows were were either in New York or 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 in Milan, uh, in in Italy. So I'm curious when you talk about your work as being the absence of the human body in a certain place and time. Of course, my mind goes to Pompeii and to the sculptures there made by injecting concrete into the empty spaces in the earth where people perished, you know, frozen in time in this sort of horrific moment. Um, or I think of another work of yours called Cave, where you created a massive indoor steel structure where visitors had to kind of awkwardly explore a kind of claustrophobic dark space. And so I guess what I'm asking is, do you think of your work in terms of being haunting and foreboding and just, you know, plainly difficult in a way? No, no, it's true. It's not. It's not. I'm afraid it is. Yeah, it is a bit existential but i would like to say that it's existential in a good way saying you 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 make you make of this work what you what you like but uh, you make of this work what you make of your life because actually this comes out of a uh, out of a life and it could be yours so that yeah yeah i mean it's terrific then you're talking about um pompeii because pompeii is an obvious point of reference you know that uh extraordinary cloud of of ash that then removed all the oxygen from the atmosphere and life stopped um and then that that leave these these kind of uh yeah mementos materialized mementos i mean i think of my work as yeah they're, they're like industrial industrially produced fossils bits of humanly live time that have been taken out of time that then engage with our vitality the, the the works are very clear about what they lack they have no feeling they have no they have they have no thought they have no movement they are still silent in a way obstacles in 
your passage through space. But at the same time, they call upon everything that you have, your ability to be free in your movement, your ability to engender concepts, your ability to empathize. And, yeah, I guess, you know, they may be difficult objects, but at the same time, they they are attempting to be catalysts for whoever comes across them to feel their own existence and life more strongly. And I think that's their, that's their point. They are literally, if a catalyst is an inert chemical that produces a reaction, then my work is a relatively inert lump of material that hopefully causes a reaction in, in, in the viewer. But it, they are absolutely dependent on the viewer they're absolutely dependent on, in a way, the beholder's share, what Gombrich used to call the beholder's share, that without, without the participation of the viewer, which might be a physical, like walking through a cave, you know, as you said, ducking down into this rather narrow and low threshold, moving through this passage that's actually the right-hand ankle of a, of a prone body and arriving in this cavernous space of the main torso and there was a show you did in the 90s the uh, total strangers uh that was so instrumental and about how a lot of galleries and artists now sort of curate art between what is public and what is private and how it all kind of you know has changed today between just being you know completely inside in a very sort of precious way can you describe that show and i'm so glad dan that you've 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 um picked on this because honestly you know a little show made in the mid 90s in cologne um you know well uh, eminently forgettable but to me that was a really really key work because it was asking that question you know what how, who asked for art to be privatized what, what why does it need the support of a institution before we can in a way have the right attitude so so this was the Cologne Kunstverein run at that time by Uda Kittelmann. and i decided that the the what i wanted to do was make the 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 museum itself somehow part of the questioning of the sculpture so there's one work at the end of this long building with big windows out onto Sicilianstrasse, it was called. And in a way, um, yeah, make these um, gestures that you would come into the gallery, you'd see this, what looked like maybe a figurative sculpture at the end. But at the same time, the minute you you stepped into the gallery, you were being looked at by an identical work that was the other side of the glass window and was looking through it at you. And then maybe as you walked along, you saw, oh, there's one then by the bus stop and then there's another one up the road. And actually there's one over there that's fallen over. So it was immediately setting up this dialogue with, as it were, life as it, as it existed, as it lived out there. And in a way, the very drama that I think I was just talking about of how life and art might interact. So people were stopping. There was a little old lady who came, banged on Udo Kittelmann's office door, saying, Herr Kittelmann, Herr Kittelmann, there is a man. Das ist nicht so gut. You know, it, uh, it worried, worried that, that somehow this wasn't right, that the sculpture should be standing <laughs> and it was lying, you know, just by someone, someone's bicycle oh, that they locked to the lamppost. Anyway, anyway, that that for me was a really terrific show because uh, immediately you went into the gallery and, and you immediately were invited to look back at the life of the street and see these dramas of how, you know, there was a whole load of people who were queuing up behind this. Dumb dummy, you know the, this Iron Man that happened to be sitting by the—I mean, standing by the by the bus stop. Anyway, it was um, today. They'd probably be, you know, taking Instagram pictures with them. And yeah, probably. Well, yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be. Um, mobile phones weren't weren't ubiquitous if if they existed at all in '96. But but um, 
I guess that that question that that show asked was, you know, how how can art um, be reintegrated and and become a reflexive instrument in which life can look at itself, uh, and how can we use the spaces of of of, of art? The, the the spaces that are in the world but not of it as vantage points to look back at the way we live uh, and yeah I mean I, I I'm so happy that you <laughs> that you picked you picked that that show because um, yeah it's uh, it was maybe the most precise uh, prodding at preconceptions about where art belongs and who it was for and how it could work. And probably copied a lot too. I don't know. No, I can't claim. I mean, you know, I would love to feel, I would love to feel that my work was (laughs) very, very influential, but I think uh, probably like, like um, most art, um, you know, it had, it it had its moment. Uh, It had its um, two months of showing and then was quietly forgotten. Over the years, Gormley structures have grown steadily more abstract, as if they've slowly morphed along with society and the ever-unfolding digital age. I wanted to ask Anthony how he works today, what inspires him, and what this accomplished artist still hopes to achieve before the end of his career. What, are, what do young artists ask you when they, when they meet you? What's the one question you get all the time? Well, I suppose the, the obvious one is, you know, how do I, how how do I, get, how do I, how do I get to how be, get how do I get to be successful, whatever that means, and and I guess, you know, I have to say, you know, the success is not what the world gives you; it's what you give yourself. You know, what satisfaction do you get out of your work, and are you really listening to what your work is telling you, and. uh you know, I I always say I can't give you any advice. The where you have to look for the advice is in the last thing that you made, and uh, and and listen, listen to what it's trying to tell you, and and keep going. And uh, it's a it's a it's a very confusing world, I think, for young artists today because actually material and market success seems to be the arbiter of success or, or what you feel uh, um, the value of your work is. The value of your work is what other people are prepared to pay for it. But I don't think it should be that way around. You know, the value of your work comes from what it, what, for what it tells you about your own condition. And many of your commissions are site-specific. So I was kind of wondering what your creative process is like for for any kind of work that is meant to be in a well it's interesting Dan because I was going you know I was going to go tomorrow we're going we're we're facing um storm Dudley um uh, so I'm not going but tomorrow I was going to go down to the south coast where somebody was interested in uh commissioning a work and I do I I always like to start with the place uh that is really important and it is as if i mean i i think that sculpture has this uh, uh, potential to be an acupuncture of of place in other words if you get the needle in the right place and it's the right shape it can begin to make the place vibrate and maybe revitalize it so you know the the that thing of going first, and the, the best example is 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 the Angel of the North. You know, going up to Gateshead, which I never visited before, um, seeing this mound it was literally a tumulus made out of the destroyed pit head baths, the winding station, all of the gear that had really furnished the life of coal mining in that place for nearly three hundred years. Um, very, very moving. I mean, Margaret Thatcher managed to remove all signs of coal mining from the northeast of England, just literally bulldozed, re-landscaped the, the spoil heaps, uh, removed all of the winding gear, removed all that sign of that incredible relation between coal mining, iron, and engineering. 
that, that really characterized the Tyne uh, and the Tees. Um, and, you know, yeah, made an, an industry that, that was shipbuilding, that was making, making railway uh, engines, that was making bridges that, 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 that was transported all over the world. But anyway, yeah, finding that, that, that mound, finding that place, and then through that place, discovering the histories, the histories of the Industrial Revolution, and and indeed all of the the remnants we had to we had to find the shipwrights who had been dispersed after the 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 loss of the of the Swan Hunter, um, the last of the great shipyards on the Tyne, uh, and we found them in Hartlepool and Middlesbrough, and we brought them together, and they collectively made the Angel happen. Anyway, the Angel is a very good example of of in a way a return to a pre-modern idea about about what sculpture is can can a community come together and make something together that in some senses both establishes their place on the face of the planet but also declares their their faith in their own future and uh, i mean that was an incredible privilege making that work but in terms of site specificity it came out of a very deep relationship with not just the site but also the community, the society that surrounded that site, and and in the in the early two thousands, your work starts to become more abstract, and, and uh, sometimes monumentally so, and sometimes not. Uh, where did that shift come from? Was it sort of to me? It seems like it's a reaction to like a digital age in a way, um, because it's it's it feel things feel more, you know, uh, almost like they needed the assistance of a computer or something like something about No, but it's that- true. I mean, the work, I mean, you could say it's a reaction to uh, digitalization. So this is a, a an awareness, certainly kind of by the end of the 90s, that actually we are spending more and more time kind of screen bound and trying to, in a way, physicalize the pixel. That was very much uh, there at the beginning of the block works. I was literally welding together lumps of steel that were two times as long as they were wide. Uh, they were just all yeah, kind of rectangular blocks of steel that were in eight rising cannon of shapes. Uh, so, yeah, half inch by half inch by inch, uh, inch by inch by two inch, two inch by two inch by four, four inch by four inch by eight. Um, and then identifying a human space with these physical blocks and then then i said well can i can i cast these and i discovered that i could and i could use a lost foam uh anyway one thing led to another and in the end uh you know i'm 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 just about to do a show in italy in san gimignano uh where i'm making unbelievably clumsy work uh, just out of I mean there's one work there's simply five blocks that aren't even attached to each other they're just laying one on top of the other uh, that looks like a crouching body if you really work hard <laughs> you have to work quite hard you have to work quite hard but anyway um, yeah the, the at a certain point I think I r- I realized that the more, in a sense, abstract or geometric, the more, the more risks the work took in terms of essentializing the body as place, the more people could project, the more people could, in a way, empathize. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also then were invited to kind of interpret, yeah, interpret these slight angles of uh, block, block to block, emotionally. Um, and it may be wish, it, it may be wishful thinking. But I think all of this is an attempt, in a sense, to bring back affect into art. You know, I I, I grew up thinking that you know. Carl Andre and Richard Serra, uh, um, you know, were the greatest 
artists ever. And yet, um, I recognized that in a, in a sense, what was missing was, was the ability to inspire, uh, you, you know, well, a range of emotions. There's no question that Sarah, you know, inspires awe and fear and makes us very aware of our own vulnerability. But, um, I think he does that by, 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 in a sense, his use of scale and mass. And I, I'm very attracted by that language, but at the same time, I want to broaden the spectrum of affect. And it, um, I mean, I'm working, Dan, towards being able to communicate joy. Um, but, but, but uh, at the moment, I would say that it is more to do with aspects of our experience that are maybe the the least heroic so they are they are to do with our vulnerability and our uncertainty uh i mean this isn't a time to be making heroic sculpture in my view this is a time to be asking what is what is the future of our species will we participate in the evolution of the biosphere or will we be the destroyer of it uh and it, that's not that you know. This isn't the the this isn't the the excuse for some kind of fin de siècle, um, you, you know, real melancholy. Yeah, call to action, call to conscience. I was going to ask you how the pandemic has sort of uh, shifted your thinking, especially if you know a lot of your work is introspective and. And has this time isolated made things um, worse, or 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 has it helped you? Well, no. Well, during damn during during the pandemic, I we've managed to do two shows. There's a there's quite a large retrospective in Stuttgart at the moment, which is um, just the absolute antithesis to the Academy show. The Academy show was getting whatever it was, you know, four thousand visitors a day. The Selfington Schauwerk show is getting 200 visitors a day maximum, but it's on for a year and two months. And the Royal Academy show was on for two and a half months. Um, so uh, I think this is a, yeah, this is, this is uh, I think, a, a, a step into a new relationship with art rather than the blockbuster and uh, like massive crowds, maybe a more, just a, a better spaced and a better timed engagement. I'm, I'm very now questioning whether I need to get on planes every two minutes. So I am going to do this show um, in San Gimignano, doing a small show at the Venice Biennale, um, but I'll go by train what's the aversion to an airplane is it just sort of uh i mean venice is quite far <laughs> well i think I, th I think the art world um uh yeah pay, plays its own part in global warming and i think we've got to we've we've got to change um i mean the idea of exporting heavy, heavy works by by air uh all over the world and then encouraging people particularly at art fairs to also um, transport themselves by air to all over the world is just a profligate use of, of of our resources i think that my whole policy now in terms of the sort of shows that i'm doing i have to look at local resources and of making shows not by transporting um hundreds of tons of artworks but by by finding a way of making the show with the local situation um as much as possible. I mean, we are, you know, all of the work that's going to Italy for this San Gimignano show uh, will travel by, by sea and by road. But anyway, no, I think it's just my responsibility. Uh, the, there is no question that we are in the middle of the sixth great extinction. The, the climate uh, emergency is an emergency. We all, we, we all have to react to that. Um, you know, may say, well, he's, he's, all very well him speaking when he's he's smelting you know um, many hundreds of tons of iron a year i try to do that as responsibly as i can so this is all recovered we use brake discs as our raw material and we use yeah, renewable energy to do all the smelting um i mean i just i'm just trying to to be as responsive as i can to what i see as the biggest single challenge that is facing our species
And where would where would you like to see your? Is there any new avenues for your art that you'd like to explore that you haven't uh, gotten around to yet? I'm really committed to the idea of making works that are integrated to a context, to a landscape, to a to a to a place. I mean, it is it is the language I've already explored with with exposure or um, quantum cloud at the Thames or or the Angel of the North. Um, but I want to do it more. I think that the the balance between I mean, it's just very strange to me that we've accepted that art has to play the role of theatre, temporary exhibitions of you know a display of art in in the kind of often highly artificial uh, environs of spotlit. Um, yeah, vitrines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want to. I, I want to make more and more work that actually lives in the elements, that reacts to the different sp- seasons of the year, that that invites people to go and see it. You know, in in rain, in shine, mornings, evenings, and nights. Something that, in in a way, is a dialogue with the elements and with the life that surrounds it, and that means all life with the trees, with the wind, with animals. Uh, not just human animals. So I would like to think the last, yeah, the, if I've got a sixth of my life to live, I would like to spend the last sixth making work that is, in a way, a dialogue with the planet, a dialogue with the biosphere, a dialogue with, in a way, the the future of life on this planet that I hope that our species will participate in. Thank you to Anthony, his studio, and everyone at Rizzoli and Sean Kelly Gallery for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. (music) 